when you're afraid to walk up the street because of who you are, even though you might live longer because you have good health care, it means nothing. And so I think that we really need to look at everyone as a full person. So what's better way of doing that than to have everyone celebrating the community? Every day should be Trans Day of Visibility, not just that one day in a year. We need to be in the light. We need to be living our lives under the sun, and we shouldn't have to hide in the dark. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of The Story of Woman. In today's world, it can feel like change is happening, but only in the wrong direction. While we agree there's still a lot of work to do, we're reframing that story. I'm your host, Anna Steckline, and each episode of this season, I'll be exploring how women make change happen from those at the top helping to drive it. We'll look at where we are in this long march to equality, what lies ahead, and how important you are in the fight. This isn't a story of a world that's doomed to oppress women forever. This is a story of an opportunity to grow stronger than ever before, exactly as womankind has always done. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Thanks, as ever, for being here. In the last episode, we heard guest host Asha Daya speak with Alicia Garza about all of her incredible work and about intersectional change. If you haven't listened to that episode with Alicia, the co-creator of the Black Lives Matter movement, go back and have a listen to that one as well. And while you're at it, you can hear more about Asha in the intro to that episode, or there are links in the show notes as well, because this week, Asha is back, and she's speaking with another incredible woman who lives and works in the intersection, Cecilia Chung, a transgender woman and internationally recognized civil rights leader who advocates for HIV-AIDS awareness, LGBTQ equality, and social justice. But I'll let Asha tell you a bit more about her in just a minute, because now I just wanted to take a minute to thank you so much for being here for this Changemaker series. This is the last one of the season. So if you haven't listened to all the conversations yet, go back and check them out. The season was all about change and how women make it happen. And we kicked it off with two of some of the greatest change makers of our time, Hillary Clinton and Cherie Blair. And yeah, I'm still pinching myself from that opportunity, which was in person, by the way. So if you haven't watched the conversation, check that out on the website or on YouTube. There's some great behind-the-scene footage in there as well. And the rest of the season features other extraordinary women driving change, like Afghanistan's youngest ever female mayor, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, an Olympic gold medalist, a few founders and CEOs, women at the front lines of the fight against climate change, and many more. If you've heard them all, well, feel free to listen again if you'd like, or uh, share with someone that you think might enjoy the conversations. After this episode, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break, but don't worry. That's just because I've got some more big plans for the story of woman when we return. I'll be back sometime in the fall of this year, 2023, with season three, and you can expect a combination of authors, business leaders, and other women doing the work to add women back into the story of mankind. And after that season, there are even bigger plans in the works. I'm just going to leave you with this annoying cliffhanger for now, but just know that in light of this latest season, which was all about change, the story of woman has some big changes itself coming this way. So if that excites you and you want to help me keep the momentum up while I'm busy plotting and creating this next phase, there are a few ways you can help which make a big difference. And you've heard me say it before, but I'm going to say it again. Share with a friend, post on socials, follow on socials, leave a rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and all of the places. I know this probably gets repetitive, but honestly, it all makes such a big difference in helping the podcast get discovered. And I'm still a one-woman operation, despite the recent successes and guests that I've had the fortune of speaking with. 
I've had some help from a few extraordinary people who are wanting to contribute to this mission, but I'm mostly out here on my own trying to create and market this thing. So anything you can do to help me spread the word is fantastic because I know I'm not actually alone out here because I've got all of you out here with me. And that leads me to the last thing I wanted to say, which was that I know you're out there, so I'd love to hear from you. You all hear from me all the time, and I love to hear from you. So shoot me a message. Tell me what you like, what you didn't like about the last season, or any ideas you have for the future. Maybe you want to collaborate. I'm super into that. So please get in touch. I've already formed quite a few friendships and collaborations with people who have reached out that way. So don't be shy. You can find my email on the website or you can reach out through socials. Oh, and so you know, I'll be releasing a few episodes of some interviews that I have done recently that give a bit of a behind-the-scenes look into the podcast, so stay tuned for those. But for now, thank you so, so, so much for being here, and please enjoy this conversation between Asha Daya and Cecilia Chung. Every June, we celebrate Pride Month here in the United States. In the UK, it is observed in July, and many other countries also hold rallies, events, and celebrations, commemorating how far we have progressed for LGBTQ rights globally, but also as a reminder that we still have work to do. When I think of the story of woman, I think of the often used phrase, feminism must be intersectional, meaning we must be mindful of the various intersections so many of us inhabit, gender, financial status, age, race, immigration status, and more, in our pursuit for equality. For me, feminism must include transgender women, and right now I believe we are at an inflection point in our global culture where speaking out for trans rights is an imperative. There is no one better to help me do this than Cecilia Chung, who is a pioneer civil rights activist and leader for LGBTQ rights, HIV AIDS awareness, health advocacy, and social justice. She is a trans woman whose life story I am honored to share with you through this interview. An immigrant from Hong Kong, Cecilia has called San Francisco home since 1984. Cecilia has broken ground in a number of ways, including being the first transgender woman and first Asian to be elected to the board of directors of the San Francisco Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Transgender Pride Celebration. She's the first transgender woman and first person living openly with HIV to chair the San Francisco Human Rights Commission and an architect of the nation's most ambitious publicly funded program addressing economic justice within the transgender community. In 2004, as a founding producer of Trans March, she helped organize one of the world's largest annual transgender events, which has since been replicated in cities across the U.S., In 2005, she became the first deputy director of the Transgender Law Center, where she still works today. And in 2013, she was appointed by President Barack Obama to the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS and served for eight years. In 2015, with the support of Transgender Law Center and Elton John AIDS Foundation, Cecilia launched Positively Trans a national network of transgender people living with HIV that focuses on storytelling, policy advocacy, and leadership development. Although we've come a long way for trans rights, with data from 2021 recording 77 transgender, non-binary, intersex, and otherwise non-cisgender officials serving in public elected positions across the US, 2023 is also a record year for anti-trans legislation. The American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, is currently tracking 491 anti-LGBTQ bills, many of which target and attack transgender youth. Much of the anti-trans rhetoric we see and hear today is driven by fear-mongering, misinformation, bigotry, or the need to score political points. And so it was a welcome opportunity to speak with Cecilia and give listeners a chance to hear from a trans woman leader, an icon and someone who has been fighting for visibility and inclusion for decades. I truly hope you will be enlightened by what Cecilia has to share and understand that when we speak about people as data points or labels, we are taking away their humanity. 
I am thankful to Cecilia for being so open and candid about her life, and I'm confident that when you hear about the work that she has been doing, you will want to join me as an ally. Trans rights are human rights, and to me, this is a crescendo moment in the story of woman. Cecilia, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you today, and I feel it is a more urgent time than ever to be talking about the topics that we'll be covering today. But before we dive into your work, I'd love to learn about you, your upbringing in Hong Kong, and what brought you here to the United States in the 80s. Oh, well, how much time do you have for my whole story? (laughs) I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I left Hong Kong when I was about 15, and I went to high school in Australia. Um, That's why I left Hong Kong. And then by the time I was finishing high school in Australia, my family decided to immigrate to the U.S. So I went back to Hong Kong, went through the interview at the U.S. Embassy, and we moved here. That was in August of 1984. And by the end of 1984, I decided that I need to move up to San Francisco from Southern California because I wanted to find my friends and my communities, and most of them are here in the Bay Area. So that's what I did, and I've been calling San Francisco home ever since. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm from Australia too. I grew up in Brisbane. I love that we've got this Australian connection going. That's really cool. And (laughs) I'd love to know, when did you know that you were trans and what was that transition like in Hong Kong and in Australia? Like, Tell me about that journey, coming out as trans and across all the countries that you lived in. How did that all happen? So that didn't come that easily because trans was not part of our vocabulary when I was growing up in Hong Kong. So all I knew was that I was attracted to boys. I liked it when boys kissed me. And it all goes back to when I was four years old in kindergarten. But the trans part, which really comes later on, when I started to realize that I don't see myself as the gender I was assigned at birth, but I relate more to women, to girls. Most of my friends, my close friends back then were girls. So it wasn't from my own high school, but from the neighbor high school, which is a girl's school. And it was so funny because I think that if you ask my old schoolmate and some of my buddies from school back then, they would tell you that, oh, we always know. I guess I was the last to find out. And it wasn't until I moved to the United States when I really get to see others who live freely as themselves in the transgender club that I realized maybe that was an answer for me too. So I started going to the club and I started to present myself in my current gender. And it feels like I finally found my element. So it's really hard to describe because how do you describe to somebody then all of a sudden one day when you do something differently, you discover who your true self is. So that's what happened. I discovered my true self. And even though the pain of discriminations and hate is pretty overwhelming, but compared to not living my life as my true self, it's trivial. And how about your family or your community in Hong Kong? Like, did they know? Did you tell your family? What was that process like? What was that experience like? I'm pretty sure that my mom knows because I played all these like different characters in Christmas play, including a belly dancer. (laughs) When I was like 11, 12, and my mom helped put makeup on me. And other of my aunts helped to put the clothes together for me. So how could they not know, right? You know, so that's a funny story to tell. I should ask my mom more because that's where I first learned about what kind of shoes and color coordinations and makeup is from watching her. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, we'll have to, when you do ask your mother eventually, let me know. We'll do a part two. (laughs) We'll find out. But back to you, it's not every day that I get to be in the presence of a barrier-breaking woman and you have been breaking ground in so many ways, most notably for transgender women and people living with HIV. Your life story inspired the character played by Ms. Ivory Aquino in the mini docudrama series, When We Rise, produced by ABC. As a trans woman yourself who has been open about living with HIV, what prompted you to share your story publicly 
And how has film and TV become a powerful vehicle for storytelling among the trans community? That's a great question, by the way, if I hadn't mentioned it before. It's really not about telling my stories when I started doing this work. You know, like my advocacy has always been because of the life situations that happened to myself. And I needed to find a platform to share that and to hope that nobody else would be in the same situations ever again. I started this when I first tested HIV positive back in the early 90s. That's before we had any of the medications. And so every single time I had to do any presentation, sharing my stories, it's really about fighting for my own life. Unfortunately, a lot of those conditions still hold truth to many trans women in the community today, especially Black trans women. So I just took that up as my responsibility to find ways to uplift their stories, to give them a platform like somebody did for me so that they can advocate for themselves and get involved with the work. In terms of the media and the film and the television, I think that there's two ways to look at it. It's great that our stories are being told on screen, but television is tricky today because there are so many different stations and streaming media. So even though our stories are told somewhere, it does not translate to everyone getting to hear about them. And that continued to be a challenge, especially for the more conservative part of this country, that chances are they won't get to see any of these shows like Pose, like When We Rise. And so I think that we still need to find other strategies to reach those in middle America. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you being a storyteller, it's something that was done out of necessity. And so now we need to do that through the media, you know, find ways to share these stories to the people that haven't been reached out of necessity so that we can expand these conversations. And most people are familiar with the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, and San Francisco was right in the center of that in so many ways. In 1994, you were a member of San Francisco's Transgender Discrimination Task Force, which documented widespread discrimination against transgender people through a groundbreaking report. The work of the task force led the city to adopt many pioneering anti-discrimination ordinances and policies. What were some of the biggest misconceptions about the LGBTQ plus community and what were some of the biggest changes you saw because of the report? So the biggest misconceptions, I would say, is to have people realize that LGBTQ is not a monolith community and in itself is not an identity. You know, it encompasses lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer community members. You know, just as well, you know, like when we get lumped together, like Asian Pacific Islander is not an identity. You know, like if we call somebody European, that's not really an identity. You know, like we all have different parts of the world, the country and the culture we come from. So when we lump everybody together, we are overgeneralize who we are. And by doing that, we would have a lot of assumptions such as, you know, LGBTQ. So G might be the same as the T because they both sleep with men and so on and so forth. But we are different. We just happen to be transgender and transgender is an adjective more than anything else. And gay men, on the other hand, the word gay doesn't mean that they are necessarily happy, you know, with so much oppressions going on. So that's an interesting way to look at it. And I think that We really need people to come forward, share their stories, tell us their struggles and how they triumphed over it. I think that the triumphant part is really important. Otherwise, we will be telling stories about traumas without really celebrating our resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And the report that I mentioned that you were part of in San Francisco, what were some of the biggest changes that happened because of that? Like, Did you see a lot of change happen afterward? I didn't see a lot of changes right away. It was just a report initially done by the Human Rights Commission. It was later on when one of the elected legislators for the city of San Francisco, his name is Mark Lano, decided to champion this as a cause and 
call forward a transgender civil rights implementation task force. And it was through that task force that recommendations were being created. And then by year 2001, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors adopted the first policy change, which is to provide trans-affirming care to city employees. But that was in 2001. It wasn't until 2012 that we adopted a new policy to extend gender-affirming cares to the cities and insured. That is really groundbreaking because today we're still seeing so many attacks and so much pushback on that. So to see that start to be talked about in 2001 and see it take so long, it's so important that we have these conversations to see that push forward. And it is 2023 and already in the first few months of this year, we are seeing hundreds of anti-trans bills being proposed, introduced, some even passed into laws across the United States. I know there's a lot of happening in the UK as well and in other countries, there's dialogue happening because what happens in the US influences other places. I know we've seen so much progress for LGBTQ plus rights, culturally as well as politically, but the distinct anti-trans rhetoric we're seeing today is shocking and really horrifying. It's definitely being used as a weapon. As someone who has been working to advance the rights of the trans community for decades, how do you feel right now about what we're seeing and how do you stay motivated to continue to advocate for your community? Without trying to create too much of an argument here, I definitely feel surprised to see those who were claiming to be religious people trying to encourage families to not love their own children and even to make it a crime if they show unconditional love to the trans children and provide the care that they need in order to thrive. Because data has shown that a lot of LGBTQ students have thought of suicide or attempted suicide because of their sexual orientations or gender identity, not because they are afraid of themselves, but because of the bullying that happened in school and the rejection they received from family. So with these data in mind, we are trying to tell the world that will criminalize you if you're trying to support these children. What does it sound like? It sounds like indirectly promoting more harm being done to the community. And that's really disheartening to me. I'm pretty sure that at the end, justice will prevail and we will be able to find the liberations that we really have been demanding for a long time. We're not trying to commit a crime, but why do you want to make us a crime or people who support us a crime? It's really irrational. And I think that maybe this is the end of the dark tunnel and we will see the light really, really soon. And I hope that's going to be the case. Mm, I hope so too. It's just really devastating to see, especially with youth, like you mentioned, there's so much impact on their lives and with the bullying in school, but this, it almost feels like political bullying when we see these laws. And so we really need to push back on that for sure. In 2005, you became the first deputy director of the Transgender Law Center and helped shape the organization's mission and programs. Can you tell us more about the work of the center and how you advocate for the trans community today? I have to say that I'm really proud with the Transgender Law Center. And it's so funny you asked me this question because I became the first deputy director in 2005. Our staff at that time was two and a half. So two of us and a half time staff. Now, today, Transgender Law Center has grown into a trans-led organization that does national organizing and impact litigations work and have more than 40 staff. And so we have grown quite a bit. In some ways, I think it's great to see more support coming from donors and also other foundations. But in some ways, we are hoping that we can work ourselves out of a job because our mission is for the community to survive and thrive. And we're not there yet at all. Like you said, all the things that we have in the U.S. have an effect around the world. So it seems almost like it's another calling for us to continue the work and make sure that we also build solidarity globally with our brothers and sisters across the ocean. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. It's very, very important and more relevant now than ever, it seems. We'll be right back after this short break to hear Cecilia talk about the trans youth of today and some of the biggest issues they face. Let's talk about youth. I know we mentioned that just recently, but trans youth, because they have unfortunately become targets of lawmakers and media commentators. Like you mentioned, in 2002, you joined the board of the Asian Pacific Islander Wellness Center and consulted with them on an innovative mobile HIV testing project for transgender youth. What are the biggest issues facing trans youth today and especially AAPI trans youth? So I think that in terms of trans youth themselves, I would say the big issues I've mentioned earlier is the bullying that they are experiencing in schools and also lack of acceptance and going back home. So imagine that if somebody continued to tell you you're not worth anything on a daily basis, eventually it's going to do something to you mentally and spiritually. So I just don't understand why people would do that like I said before. But more importantly is we also see a rise in HIV cases among LGBT youth and trans youth also was one of them. I don't have the data in front of me right now, but in terms of their HIV prevalence rate, it's like on the rise. And that's really disturbing for us to see. Here we are trying to have plan and strategize how to end the epidemic. But on the other hand, we're not ending the epidemic of intolerance and discriminations and hate. So that translates to a lot of work that needs to be done. For API trans youth, I would have to say that the condition is slightly better because for us, because we have been so influenced by our own culture as Chinese, as other Asian communities, our cultures are very conservative. So to really come out to our parents, it's really anxiety-provoking. So I think that the difference today is that more youth who are here in the United States feel more comfortable to express themselves differently. And whether they actually are identified as part of the community or not, we are seeing a really beautiful community transforming. And we have new terminologies now because a lot of these children, they're not necessarily identified with one binary gender and they have different ways to look at themselves and express themselves. And finding that freedom to do that is something that I'm really jealous about because Mm. I certainly didn't have it. The road is hard, but it seems like our youth find ways to overcome that and continue to demonstrate their determination and beauty. I love that. And just going back to the HIV issue that you said was on the rise, is it a matter of breaking down misconceptions and discrimination as well as more education within the health system that might help those numbers? It's threefold. You've mentioned two of them. The other one is legislation changes as well, because in some states, you would have to report to your parents if you decide to come out in school as lesbian, gay or transgender without really considering the safety of doing so. I think that it's really important for us to really remember that, first of all, if we really want to help these children, we have to do no harm to them. No harm to them means that we cannot resolve to things like the conversion therapy or breaking their confidence and sharing this without their consent with whoever, especially with their family and parents. And I think that that's still a lot of work to be done also in healthcare setting, but it's hard for them to change. You know, like when you have laws that says that we're not letting you provide gender-affirming care to these children. And if providers are doing that, you will be committing a felony. That's really a serious threat to the fabric of the society itself for non-medical folks on the legislations who are trying to dictate how they should be providing medical care. 
to trans children. I don't know if it's even ethical. I hope in the not so far future, we will see that these laws will be struck down. I really hope so. I hope so too. I definitely have faith in Gen Z and the youth with their social media advocacy and TikTok. They're really speaking out. So that definitely gives me hope. But yeah, sometimes I look at some of these politicians I'm like, how are you an elected official? But I digress. That's a whole, whole other issue. But a lot of what they do is fear-mongering and fear-mongering seems to be a tactic of the conservative movement, whether it's bills that seek to legislate which bathrooms transgender folks can use or the scapegoating of trans athletes in the guise of wanting to protect women's athletics. And let's be honest, they don't care about women's athletics. Also to the absurd notion of states banning drag performances in public, which is to assume that all drag performers are transgender, which they're not. I mean, just even that basic education isn't there. Amidst this noisy and often dehumanizing landscape, what do you want people to know about the trans community? If you had the chance to speak to all of those people, what do you want to say? Oh, wow. I don't know if I have one speech for all of them, but I think that it's really important to let them know that what they're doing is creating more harm. They didn't put in their job to do harm to the people they represent. They're there to actually pass legislations and laws that would protect the people. So instead, they find the most marginalized group and bully the heck out of them. They should not be in office. I would remind them that I'm a voter too, and many of our supporters and also community members vote as well. And please don't discount that. If you see your seat being so important, you should not discount our voice. And what about the average person, say in the Midwest or anywhere across the country, if they don't know anything about the trans community, but they're hearing a lot of this noise, what would you want to say to an average person out there about the trans community and and your own life? I think that we say that for politicians, they do opposition research. And then I would say that just do your own research. Don't just listen to what one TV station tells you. Look at all the research that's been happening, not just from the conservative side, but also from more of the scientific side of the research. There are so many different research articles. We can always form a biased opinion if we cherry pick these studies to read or conservative channel to watch. So just be open for conversations. Otherwise, they'll be preaching to their own choir and we'll be preaching to our own choir and it will just continue to polarize these issues. So what we need to do is to come together and have conversations. And hopefully by doing that, they would see that what they are trying to do actually is creating more harm to people they claim to love. Yeah. And also hearing individual stories like your own, I think is really powerful and humanizing way of bringing it back to the individual as opposed to just a data point or a statistic. We're looking at a fellow human being and to connect in that way, I think is also really powerful. And a few years ago, I interviewed the director of the award-winning documentary, Mama Gloria. Her name is Lucina Fisher, the director, about the late iconic trans woman of color, Gloria Allen. Lucina told me that in her community for trans youth to see an elderly trans woman at the age of 76 is a really big deal. And what is most frustrating about the scapegoating and fear-mongering narratives that we're seeing today is that when you actually look at the data, like you mentioned, trans women and especially trans women of color are more likely to face discrimination and violence. Can you talk about the harm that trans women of color especially face and the impact of trans visibility? I like the fact that we are seeing more resiliency from the trans community. And so we have more elders now. So yes, it's still rare for us to see too many trans women who live to the age of 70s or beyond. But I think because of places like here in San Francisco, like New York, like Los Angeles, we are really providing necessary care to the community. And we are seeing more longevity for the community. But what really needs to happen, I think, beyond that, it's really for us to be able to focus on quality of life. Right now, the quality of life is dictated by researchers in very specific categories, but it really didn't tell you about their stressors in their lives. When you're afraid to walk out the street because of who you are, 
even though you might live longer because you have good health care, it means nothing. And so I think that we really need to look at everyone as a full person. So what's better way of doing that than to have everyone celebrating the community? And I think that I've read that somewhere on the social media. Every day should be Trans Day of Visibility, not just that one day in a year. And I totally agree with that. So we need to be in the light. We need to be living our lives under the sun, and we shouldn't have to hide in the dark. I love that. That's so powerful. Speaking of social media, I recently watched a compelling video from Alok Vaidmanon, a gender non-conforming and trans-feminine writer, performer, and media personality. Many people know who they are. And Alok's videos often go viral on social media. And Alok said in an interview that trans people are not being targeted because we lack. It's because we love. We have the audacity to love parts of ourselves that other people hate in themselves. I just thought that was such a powerful statement. And Cecilia, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it means to unapologetically live an authentic life and perhaps why it's such a threat to other people. I love Alok too. They always have all these like brilliant remarks and then it's just like, all these light bulbs in our head. Hey, like, why didn't I think of that? It also reminded me of what one of my friends, Laverne Cox, who had mentioned before, is that being trans is revolutionary. Being able to love trans people is revolutionary. And the similar situations, I think that that's what people are being threatened because they're not being threatened by who we are, but who they are themselves. If they heaven forbid, find a trans woman attractive, then it's not us that are panicking, it's them who are panicking because they start having all these anxieties about, oh, what's wrong with me? Why do I like somebody that I'm not supposed to? Because of the stigma. Yes, and purely based on stigma. It's nothing else. Even though there might be a lot of things in common between a trans woman and a person who's attracted to them, but that person who's attracted to them afraid to express that affections because of all these society arbitrary values of like what's deserving and what's not deserving. And this kind of punishing mentality needs to stop. Like I look said, loving someone, loving part of ourselves is the beautiful things, you know, and that's what self-esteem is built on, isn't it? We need to take pride in ourselves and be able to look in the mirror and appreciate what we are seeing. So being trans is no different. After we have our gender affirming procedures, whatever it is, we found happiness in ourselves and we love who we are seeing in the mirror. It's nobody else's business. And I don't know why people get so hung up to the point that they need to get violence over this. So it's really about challenging themselves. What being open really is because we're not threatening the heteronormative community. They can build all these lies all they want. We've been around forever. People still continue to procreate. The population is growing bigger and bigger and not shrunk into oblivion. Yeah, it really starts with ourselves and looking within ourselves and what's troubling us. And that self-esteem, like you said, has impacted the world in so many good and bad ways. So yeah, it definitely starts with us in that way. And, you know, I was thinking about when I was writing these questions that this is a really important question too. It's not just opposition from the conservative movement. There are also those who consider themselves feminists who are anti-trans, often referred to as trans-exclusionary radical feminists, often abbreviated with the term TERFs. Some think that the long-fought and hard-won gains for the women's movement globally, not just in the United States, are being jeopardized by trans activism. But there are also numerous people, especially young feminists of all genders, who are adamant that feminism must be inclusive, myself included. Although I'm not young, I'd like to include myself in that category. You are young compared to me. (laughs) Well, I'm about to turn 40 this year, so I'm like hanging on by a thread to that youth label. But can you talk about why the inclusion of trans women in the larger women's rights movement is important and perhaps what the movement could do better to be inclusive. Yeah, I think that to talk about feminism, we have to include people like Bell Hooks, Sojourner Truth, and to really look at 
the intersectionality of what it means to carry so many different identities. Looking back, we also see how imperialism, colonialism, and white supremacy influenced the feminist movement, especially the early part of the feminist movement. But when there are more women of color got involved, that's when things really shift for the better. And for us, this is really going back to some of the really fundamentals of what being feminist means about body autonomy, the right to choose. So those are all the things that the trans community wants as well. Our body, our choice. Why would it be just your body is your choice, but not my body? It doesn't work that way, right? These kind of principles need to be consistent. Not just because you look at somebody, you don't like them, and you take back the principle. That's not feminist at all. That's quite anti-feminist, actually, in my opinion. Yeah. What are some ways that the larger feminist movement could be more inclusive? Should we be taking more cues from the younger generation and listening to more trans people more? That's definitely part of it. But the bigger part of it is we really need to build more bridges across various movements with the migrants' movements, for instance, or the labor movements, and also universal healthcare. U.S. is one of the few high-income countries that are not providing healthcare to their citizens or to people who are here. So that's a lot that needs to change. Maybe some of that is also about confronting the negatives of capitalism and trying to change it for the better. But if it doesn't work, why not tear it down and build something better? Yeah, I agree. Let's tear it down and build something better and <laughs> include trans women as the architects. We need each other. So I love that idea. On a more local level, in San Fran, you are credited as being the architect of the nation's most ambitious publicly funded program addressing economic injustice within the transgender community. Can you tell us what the program does and how you would encourage other cities and lawmakers to perhaps replicate similar initiatives as a way to push back against these anti-trans bills that we're seeing? I need to tell a story, of course. Yes, tell me a story. When we first started doing this work, the LGBT Center here had already started doing job fair. But what they didn't see were trans people attending these job fairs. That's how they came to us and ask, you know, like, what can we do to make sure that trans people also attend these job fair because they have the intention. But in terms of the delivery, we have to remind them that transgender people don't trust easily. And for us to feel safe, we need to make sure that it's a dedicated space for us. So let's try to create a transgender job fair a standalone transgender job fair so that employers who are supporting the community can show up. That's the important part. We don't want to apply for a job and later on discover that they don't like us and want to fire us because of who we are. It's really that simple. That job fair started to really transform how we look at trans employment here in the city. And later on, I did a survey for the city of San Francisco on the economic health of transgender community and really found the kind of discriminations they face. And over 50% of them live in poverty and even below the federal poverty line. And a lot of them have to rely on street economy to survive. So that speaks to the urgency to create a workforce development program that's tailored to the community. And since we know that if you are building something specific, it would attract community to participate. That's how we started to do all these advocacy with all the different supervisors at the time and ask them to consider setting aside some money to fund this project. And at the end, they did. So we secured $300,000 from the Board of Supervisors to create a transgender workforce development program. And in addition to that, the one-stop shop here in San Francisco also had invited us to go in and partner with them to train all their staffs around transgender issues and how to create a more welcoming environment for transgender people. And we did. So that program's been going on now forever. And it has actually transitioned into 
just a regular job development program for LGBT community. But that trust didn't come overnight. We built on it little step by little step for the last 15, 20 years to get to where it is today. Yeah. And hearing you speak and hearing more about your story and reading more about your story, it really underscores the importance of having a seat at the table. I mean, you've been able to be in these commissions and be in these organizations and advocating. And I think that's a really huge part of the story, seeing more trans lawmakers get elected, young trans lawmakers get elected across the country. There are a handful Hopefully that will increase. I think that definitely makes a difference having a representative from your community advocating. So yeah, thank you for having those seats at many tables. We need that more and more. We actually also, when there are no seats for us, we create our own table and invite others to come to our table for these conversations. So in some way, that's actually more effective because what we really want are people who really desire to see the change that happens. Like going to grab a seat at somebody else's table would be one voice amongst many. And we want the opposite. We want to be the majority of the voice so that we could really influence change. Yes. Agreed. I think that's really wonderful. Well, this podcast is called The Story of Woman, and it is clear by your own story that we cannot talk about the history of women and the future without including transgender women. And I'd love to know who are some of the groundbreaking trans women who have inspired you throughout your life and who is inspiring you right now? There are definitely a lot of trans women. I think that the most well-known will be Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, and also Miss Major, who's actually a good friend of mine as well. They really broke a lot of grounds in the 60s, but there are still more that we have not been able to acknowledge, such as the trans communities who started the Jean Compton's Cafeteria Riot here in San Francisco. And one of my trans mother, Tamara Ching, I know that if she hears that, she's gonna hate it because she doesn't want to really take credit. All she wants is to see all the girls happy. That's what she would tell you. But for her to be so unapologetically trans and be so audacious means a lot. And it's a great role model, especially for Asian trans women like me to see, oh, there's another feisty trans woman out there who's been doing this work 20 years before I did. Yeah. That's wonderful. I love that. And a quick look at any social media newsfeed is enough to make anyone hopeless or anxious about the world. There's a lot of bad news going on, but there are also so many inspiring people whose life work is a testament to why we should never give up, including yourself, Cecilia. I'm so inspired by the work you've been doing for decades and are still doing. It's so important. So I'd like to know what gives you hope for the future for the trans community in America and globally. What gives me hope really is to see how our communities are utilizing different social media to build connections. So that's a really brilliant way to break isolations and build community. And it's not just building local community, but we are now building a global community that we could all share and discuss issues that are happening in our part of the world and come up with ideas and strategies to resist the kind of oppressions that we're seeing and also to help those who are in even worse situations than we are, such as a lot of the trans community are experiencing that in sub-Saharan Africa and even in Asia. That's still a lot of transphobia happening. And to really help to change that, we need to bring those stories to light. And the best way to do that is through social media through platforms like Twitter and Facebook that you can repost and retweet. And for the Gen Z, they like platforms like Instagram and TikTok. And I think that that really helps when more people can speak about the issues, when people can tell part of the stories or to openly celebrate who they are. It gives joy back to the community. And that's what we need most, especially right now. We definitely need some more joy. Yes, very well said. 
Well, Cecilia Chung, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an honor and just a real eye-opening experience hearing about your story and the work that you're doing. And I'm so thrilled that you are in the space that you're in advocating for so many. So thank you so much for being on The Story of Woman. Well, thank you. And it's nice meeting you too, especially someone who's actually from Australia as well. Well, we can talk about that at some other time. Yes, I'm in the migrant journey. My family are Indian, moved to East Africa, then to England, where I was born. Then we migrated to Australia. I moved to the US by myself to work in media. So Indians and Asians, we like to get all around the globe, which I love. <laughs> yeah, I love all my Asian friends. And I have a lot of friends who are either Filipinos or Indian. So I think that it's kismet. I don't know how else to put it that brought us together. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I used to be so like ashamed of my identity growing up in Australia was very white in the 90s, especially in TV and magazines. And so now it's like, I want to see more brown and black and different colored faces as well and on platforms like you have. So it's really wonderful. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think that we need more of women's stories in the world, be sure to share with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help us beat those pesky algorithms. Follow us on socials for more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes. And for access to bonus content and ad-free listening, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. This is the best way to help me continue to put out more and better episodes. Or you can buy me a metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs. And in exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep, knowing that you are helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Anna Steckline. It was edited by Maddie Searle, with communication support by Joe Cummings. A special thanks to Amanda Brown, Kate York, and Dan Kendall for their ongoing production support and invaluable advising. And a special thanks to our Patreon collaborators. Veronica Linares from Values Leadership Consulting, transforming mindsets to put humanity and the planet at the heart of leadership. Christine Beasy from Untangle Money, creators of financial plans designed specifically for women. Dr. Julie Allig of JLA Analytics, your data's talking. Are you listening? Joanna Cummings, editor of the Grub Street Journal, the magazine for people who make magazines. Jill Quigley from The Giving Grove, Little Orchards, Big Impact, a nationwide network of little orchards. Andrew Planet, advocate for naming our species human rather than man, and for joint matrilineal surnames. To share your name, business, or message at the end of every episode, sign up to be a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash the story of woman. Get your message out there, listen to bonus content, and rest well, knowing that you're doing your part in helping to elevate the story of woman.